Okay, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for the so great salvation that we enjoy through the Lord Jesus. We're thankful that you have provided our salvation complete, that it doesn't need human works added to it, and that we can rest in what you have provided. And we ask tonight that the Holy Spirit will illuminate our hearts to what you have helped plan for our future, and that we can stabilize our lives knowing the next chapter. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we uh, worked with postmillennialism, and um, we introduced it, and I think we, we just about finished it, but I want to um, review a few things with that viewpoint. Postmillennialism sees that history has to come to some sort of climax <clears throat> prior to the eternal state. And so, therefore, it's a view that is progressive. That is, it holds that history is progressing and getting better and better until the return of Christ. And because history is getting better and better before the return of Christ, we call it, uh, it, it along with premillennialism, places the kingdom inside history. Remember, see, we cut this off here. So that, that the kingdom comes this side of the final end. So, in that sense, postmillennialism shares with premillennialism the idea of this pre-eternal state kingdom. What it doesn't share with premillennialism is the fact that this future kingdom comes because Christ comes to set it up. So their view of the kingdom, the postmillennial view of the kingdom, and the premillennial view of the kingdom have some similarities. <clears throat> they involve mortal people. They involve a kingdom of God inside present history. But as we'll see tonight, um, they differ. These two kingdoms differ remarkably. The kingdom of premillennialism is something brought in catastrophically, not gradually. It's something that depends upon whatever it is that Christ is going to do when he comes back. This kingdom is something that's continuous with present history. Almost we imperceptibly glide into it. And postmillennialism um, shares with amillennialism the idea that the kingdom really uh, has to do with the church primarily. And it's, it's the Old Testament images of that kingdom are pretty much figurative. <clears throat> Amillennialism and postmillennialism, one is sort of neutral or pessimistic. The postmillennialist is optimistic. Now, in the notes, <clears throat> if you'll um, look on the uh, page 11, you'll see something that they do to the gospel that is quite significant. 
if we place the gospel ahead of the kingdom, and if we say that the kingdom of God can be brought in in this age, then the gospel itself is the tool to bring in that kingdom. And therefore, the gospel itself is addressed not just to individuals who will be saved, but it's addressed not to just individuals, but also to the nations. It's addressed to institutions. And this is why on page 11, I have that uh, quote, the second paragraph. To post-millennialists, the Great Commission of Matthew 28 is not a command to preach the gospel merely, but to conquer world culture for Christ. Bettner cites another postmillennialist who says, to reduce this Great Commission to the premillenarian program of preaching the gospel as a witness to a world that is to grow worse and worse until it plunges its doom in destruction, is to emasculate the gospel of Christ and wither it into pitiful impotency. See their view? See what's different here? I want you to see these nuances to things. And this won't be lost because when we get into the Gospels of Christ, you'll see um, these issues will come up. Um, Something to remember about debates in church history, particularly within the camp of the saints, is the debate is usually caused because of some sort of imbalance that's going on. And it's like the Holy Spirit has to rattle our cage and bounce us around a little bit to make us think things through better. What do you observe about postmillennialism that it that it's doing here to the gospel? It it's it's um, well. What are some observations? Do you have anybody have observations? If you were to think consistently this way, what does this? What do you notice it doing? To the gospel message. Oriented towards works, oriented toward reformation of society at large, directly. It's looking for victory. And it will not be satisfied unless it has a message of victory. And it defines victory by history terminating in God's kingdom. <clears throat> they refer to this thing right here in this diagram of premillennialism as that that is a block to progress in the sense that as long as we exist on this side of the return of Christ in premillennialism before the coming of Christ, we are blocked off from that kingdom. And therefore, we can talk all we want to about the gospel. But the gospel we talk about, we know, deep down in our hearts, will not bring in the kingdom. So therefore, they claim that we are rendering the gospel impotent. Okay? <clears throat> now, what is it they're concerned with in premillennialism? Uh, let's look at premillennialism from their viewpoint. Why are they concerned? What do they say about premillennialism that bothers them. Yes, Tony. Yeah. 
Okay? Okay? They feel that premillennialism is just talking about saving individuals. It's not looking at the environment. It's not looking at society. Our fixation is over here, looking at that kingdom yet to come. And our efforts are, so to speak, we're recruiting out from history the future inhabitants of that kingdom. And since we're exiting people out of the world, we're really not concerned with the world as such. We're negligent, so to speak, from their viewpoint. And so they historically have emphasized the conversion of the nations. Now this leads to a problem. You can't convert nations until you do what? Convert individuals. What happens if you try to convert nations before you've converted individuals. What's the only way you can do that? By what? Church state, totalitarian imposition, imperialism in the name of Christianity. And this is what has terrified some of the liberals in our society right now because there are a few, not, not the majority, but there are people within the post-millennial camp today who say that we should elect people to public office and forcibly impose the Mosaic law on everyone including stoning. And this sounds like the Ayatollah. I mean, this is what the Muslims did in, in Iran. So you can see the reaction. So if you push the more thoughtful post-millennialists, they will agree, they'll back up. They'll back off of this thing and they'll say, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. You've got to win people to Christ first. And then when you get a concentration of those people, then you want them to influence society. Okay? But then once you've reduced it to this, isn't that okay for premillennialists to do? I mean, after all, if you win 110 people to Christ in a community of 130, uh, you ought, there ought to be some influence going on. So, premillennialism is not blocked from that kind of thing. And what I want to show you tonight, before we leave the different views and get into how we reconcile them, is that out of these viewpoints come ideas about our place in society at large. They're big pictures. These are sort of like big road maps that show where we're going. In the premillennial picture, because our idea of the kingdom is off into the future, having to be brought in by the return physically of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that do for us as far as thinking about how societies are to be converted? Or, shall we say negatively, what does it say about evil in our present society? We live in a sinful, evil world. Now, if we are going to say that the kingdom of God can't come until Christ returns, what does that imply about social evil and its powers? It implies that evil has so entrenched itself into the very structures of society that the only way it's going to be rooted out is by the return of Christ. So, we have a deep respect for a powerful evil. And if you can map it out like this in a graph, um, you can always say that in premillennialism, during the period before Christ, if, you, if this is righteousness, 
Righteousness has a certain theoretical upper bound on it. Can't, it hits a ceiling. Can't go any further. Even if all people, millions of people in a country were one to Jesus Christ in a premillennial view, that would not be the kingdom of God. So, you see, the thing is that in premillennialism, it has a very high view of what it takes to create this kingdom. This kingdom is not just a society of 100% believers. It's more than that. It's a society where Christ personally returns, reigns in his physical presence. It's a society, as we'll see, that has all kinds of other things happening physiologically to the human body, disease, the environment. So, in premillennialism, before Christ returns, we have a high ceiling here. We're not to be pessimists in the sense that um, we're in no danger of reaching the ceiling as far as, as, as righteousness reigns in our society. But on the other hand, we also, because Jesus Christ promises the church will always prevail, and because we are pre-tribulational, which is something else we'll get into, the idea basically being as long as the church is here, there's a restraint on evil going on, we can draw another line in this graph like this. And that is that righteousness always has a lower bound also. Things will not get totally negative because who, the restrainer is still restraining. So there will always be places in the world that will be safe for believers. One way of seeing that. Not all places of the world will be safe for believers. It won't be. But in the tribulation, when the Antichrist reigns, there will be no place safe on earth for believers. But at least throughout the church age, there will be sacred free zones where there's enough righteousness to preserve freedom. God has always allowed that to happen. In the days of uh, the Middle Ages, uh, the Swiss, and people fled to Switzerland. That's where the Waldensians were. That's how they survived Romanism for, for centuries. They went up and they hid in the Swiss Alps. And they had their farms there and they had their cottage industries. And that's how these people lived. And they passed on premillennialism, the Word of God, Bible teaching for years and years and years, all up in the Swiss Alps. Because the Catholic Church and the people that dominated never bothered. They wouldn't climb all the mountains. So, there was a place where they could be safe. America, this country, was a place, one time, where people could come because of the persecution in Europe. They felt free. There was a place, in other words, that you could just rest, you could raise your families, you could do your business, you could, ah, you just don't have to keep fighting the system all the time. There's a place you can live, in other words, peacefully. So, within the church age, the, the tempo, the spiritual pulse of a society can drift. It can go up and it can go down and so on, like this. Drifting around between these upper and lower boundaries. So, premillennialism is not necessarily pessimistic. It's just saying to get to the kingdom, as the Bible conceives it, with a total ecological transformation, a physiological transformation, a supernatural kingdom which mortals will coexist with immortals, that sort of kingdom cannot come without some catastrophic, miraculous intervention. That's what premillennialism is saying. On the other hand, postmillennialism doesn't see the kingdom in those terms. 
Postmillennialism, just sees the kingdom as we would say a sort of souped up, spiritualized society. That's their view of the kingdom. So you see, the kingdom views are different. Okay. Now we want to come to how we resolve the issue. And tonight we want to go through two of the four criteria and then we'll finish it up next week and get on first set of notes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, as I say in the notes, the issue ultimately in all this is how do we interpret the Old Testament prophecies that look forward to that kingdom? Now, there's three, three views of the kingdom now. We check it, right? Amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism. Let's just think, just to review, just a minute. Amillennial view of the kingdom. There is none. Ah, ah, ah means no. No millennium. So what do they believe? They say, well, either the kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament should be figuratively applied to the church, present time, or there are some amillennialists saying, all the Old Testament prophecies should be applied to the eternal state. Okay? Ah, millennialism. No kingdom. Post-millennialism, we said, is a souped-up version of a regenerate society. The premillennial version is a catastrophic geophysical change as well as a social change in the kingdom. So on the bottom of page 12, I cite one of the textbooks on interpreting scripture. And he points out that the issue is not figurative, uh, is not one of the figurative or non-figurative language of the prophets. Um, the, the ultimate end of that quote is, the real issue in prophetic interpretation among evangelicals is this. Can prophetic literature be interpreted by the general method of grammatical exegesis, or is some special principle necessary? What he means by that is, the rest of the scriptures we interpret literally unless we're forced and driven to symbolic interpretation. Right? I mean, when you read the Song of Songs and you read about um, the lover looking at his beloved and he says to her that your neck is like a high tower. Um, that just doesn't quite send a romantic image. Well, we just say, wait a minute, let's back up. Do we really understand what this is talking about? And there's figurative, um, figurative imagery in that. It's a, it's a wisdom book. So you've got to kind of back up and figure out, well, what does that mean and so forth and so on. But everybody recognizes figurative language. The issue, however, is whether the main thrust of the prophecies, are we talking about what we observe to be the kingdom of the Old Testament? So what I'm going to show you now is I'm going to take you through four criteria that I believe show that you take these prophecies literally. That the picture we get of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, supernatural kingdom of God, and a physical, this history type thing, that this is why we believe that. The first one is that we start off in Genesis 1 with a creationist view of nature. Now, if you'll, uh, we're going to be looking at some of these passages, so let's start by looking at Isaiah 65. And we're going to look at some of these Old Testament prophecies. One other political thing that I might mention here that's very contemporary, um, looking back at the post-millennialist, 
anybody realize what one of the prophecies of the kingdom era is with respect to international relations? Peaceful. Isaiah says they shall what? To the swords. Turn their swords into plowshares. Military armaments will not be necessary. That money and resources can be expended on plowshares, meaning productive things. So, one of the prophecies of the millennium came very practically is world peace. Now, how increasingly do you notice from reading papers, newspapers, watching the commentators, watching the leaders of the world, what is it looking like that's happening as far as their thinking about how to bring in world peace? What do we increasingly see our, our military, our own military doing? We're policemen, sort of international policemen. And the idea is that all the nations have this kind of superstructure that they're going to work through, this, this world government thing. And that is going to bring in peace. Well, now, it's kind of wrong and it's right. It's right in the fact that that's probably the only way peace is going to work. It's wrong in the fact that whatever this world power is going to be, it's going to be humanly based on the sinful man at the helm. Because if it's sinfully based and human will at the helm, what is that a recapitulation of that we've already studied in history? It happened once. All the way back in Genesis. Anybody remember? Tower of Babel. So the idea of a world government and a world kingdom to bring in peace was already tried once. And you get God's opinion of it. What did he do? He broke it up. So God isn't favorably disposed to creating another Tower of Babel. This influences us politically. When we get in discussions and say, well, aren't you for world peace? Yeah, we are. Well, then why are you always this, these right-wing, extreme religious right people? I mean, come on, join the crowd. What is your problem? Our problem is that we believe in evil. problem is that I believe that I'm depraved and so are you. And I don't want you talking, telling me what to do and you don't want me telling you what to do. Very simple. We are depraved, fallen creatures going to hell apart from the redemption of Christ. Now, how do you get a group that's going to hell to live peaceably together? That's the problem. So we've analyzed the whole problem completely differently. But the naive sentimentalist who wants peace, we all want peace, because they have a defaulty view of human nature, they think this is possible by human beings honestly getting together and talking it out and blah, 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 and everything's going to be cool. And we're not against negotiations. We're not against peace treaties. Had them all down through the centuries. But we don't share, if we're premillennialists, a one-world view in the modern liberal political sense that's totally incompatible philosophically with the scriptural viewpoint. Absolutely in collision with it. So what I'm trying to show you by introducing these things is these ideas, while we can draw diagrams and, you know, oh, gee, that's cool, that's a six-letter theological word or something like that. The point is, it does have political overtones. And it does influence the way you think politically and economically. And people that are all around us that might never characterize themselves as believers, certainly biblically illiterate, yet they have an eschatology. Everybody has some 
eschatology. Don't you think that it's not just Bible-believing people going in their little storefront churches that are talking about future events? Communism had a fantastic eschatology. Stole it from Genesis. Stole it from Daniel, rather. But, and they didn't know it, that they were trafficking in stolen goods. But, in fact, communism and Nazism, the Third Reich, all those are eschatologies. And the, today, the liberal professor or the liberal politician who thinks that world peace is going to come in with some one-world conglomerate-type government, they too have an eschatology. So, there's a collision out there of eschatologies. And the eschatologies are based on the depravity of man, what God is doing in history, and so on. See, so immediately you get into God, you get into the Word of God, you get into the revelation of God, so forth, so on. Nobody's neutral. But here in Isaiah, chapter 65, is one of the classic locations. Poets down through the years have cited this passage, and it's almost become a byword. It's sort of like, beat their sword shall be beat into plowshares. That's one verse. I'm not sure of this, but I think Isaiah 2, where, where that section of world peace is, I think if you go in the New York City by the UN building, you'll see that on the outside of the building. It's interesting. The scripture they quote. You know, when it's convenient, they quote it. In verse 25, the wolf and the lamb graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall do no evil or harm in my holy mountain. One of the conditions um, in the future kingdom. Now, that's a condition involving animals. It's a condition today, what would we call that? An ecological thing. So you see, the conditions in the Bible that operate during this kingdom of God thing are greater than just everybody's a believer. It's not just everybody's a believer. It is that the environment of all the believers itself has been geophysically changed. That's involved in these prophecies, and that's the debate. Do you take passages like verse 25 of Isaiah 65 and say that that's literally going to happen? If you do, you hold to the kingdom as a premillennialist would hold to it. If you don't, and it's just figurative, everybody's cozy. It's just a general kind of figurative image, meaning for peaceful conditions, then you could be a post-millennialist or all-millennialist or anything. So, see, there's the literalness of this. Okay, now if you look at the bottom of page 13 in the notes, that big paragraph, let me, follow me as I go through this, because this is, there's a line of logic to this. To decide the question, the interpreter must rely on the creationist view of nature given in the Noahic Bible. This buried foundation, which we covered year, years ago, establishes the worldview within which later scripture, shouldn't be were, later scripture was written. Okay? Let me review that again. Notice the language. It establishes the worldview within which later scripture was written. The authors of the scripture, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, what was their view of the world? Not the 20th century guy that studies them. They didn't hear about Darwin. They didn't hear about Big Bang. What was their view of nature, you suppose? What they read out of Genesis. 
These guys are the prophets. So they wrote out of a worldview of Genesis 1 to 11. Now, in that section, we ask, given then the creationist worldview, the next question is whether such a biological change would appear as a literal possibility. Were there ever changes in the zoological world of such a magnitude previously? He finds there were. Not only were there great morphological changes introduced into the zoological world by the curse, Genesis 3.14, Romans 8, but the very same change between herbivores and carnivores in the opposite direction occurred after the flood. Remember we went through that? And I said when we go through that, when we talk about meat-eating and herb-eating and vegetarianism and all that, that change that happens, and I said we're going to revisit that someday. Well, this is the someday. Now, let's look at something. Remember back in those days when we were studying that, we had the creation, had the fall, had the flood, and we had that diagram of the ages of man. Remember the graph looked like this, and then it came down like this. And we said that something profound happened here. I mean, come on. This is 930. This is 70 over here. What caused that? I don't know what caused that. I just know the scriptural data tell me that it happened. I mean, gee, you know, if you were an insurance company, you'd love it back here. So the whole point was that something physiologically changed, and I mean changed radically. Think of the bodily functions. I mean, most of our parts are wearing out. And we've only lived 60, 70 years. I mean, a guy reaches 70 years, he's lucky to have all his original parts. The point is that in 930 years, these guys were, were hitting all cylinders. What was it in their, in their bodies that enabled this to take place? We don't know. But I dare say there was some ecological stuff going on, and we, we know from Genesis 9, the diet changed from one of vegetarianism to one of meat-eating. We know that uh, the weather changed, implication being the rainbow. So there was geophysical changes. And you see, here's where we trap ourselves. Now, what does the modern person do with all this stuff? What do they do with Genesis? Kiss it off. So you get this average evangelical person that gets barely into the kingdom through some sort of a truncated version of the gospel, and they get accidentally born again, and then they never read the Bible. And they, they, they've grown up with a skepticism about Genesis. Somehow they believe in Jesus, but a contentless Jesus, because Jesus is defined by God, and God is defined by Genesis. But that's the way, I mean, this is the church today. So we have a lot of people, even in our own camp, who have a very fuzzy and uneasy view of this whole Genesis thing to start with. Well, given that, then they walk into a passage like Isaiah 65, what do you suppose happens? If they figuratively interpreted all this Genesis stuff, what are they going to do to all the kingdom stuff? What they do at the beginning of history, they're doing at the end of history. The same thing that's working here. So, the kingdom of God, as it is seen in premillennialism, is a supernatural kingdom. And we, when we hit a passage like Isaiah 65, verse 25, we ask ourselves, I mean, is this gonna, can this take place? 
from what we know of past Scripture? Is there a past precedent for this kind of thing happening? Yes, there is, if you take Genesis literally. And if this is so, what does this suggest about evil and the environment, with all due respect to Greenpeace? That the environment does have some sort of... It is in sympathy with fallen men. The environment has fallen. God cursed what? The ground. The biological and zoological world bears the curse of Adam. You see, we have a lot more profound view of ecology than the most radical ecologists. Greenpeace and these people worrying about somebody um, you know, <coughs> dropping cigarette butts out of, the, out of a yacht. We're talking about Adam and Eve who fell and destroyed the very DNA in, the, in, the, in that biological realm. When you talk about destructive efforts and fallout, this isn't beer cans and, and papers on the edge of the road here. This is a twisting of turning of the complete molecular structure of our environment because God cursed it. Because man rebelled against him, so the ground rebels against man. Now you talk about ecology, see? So if you're going to reverse it, what do you suppose happens? Why is it that Jesus Christ has to return? What is he going to do? It's not a government program here. This is a miraculous intervention by Jesus Christ to redeem the environment geophysically and biologically, as well as set up his kingdom. Okay, let's go on. Bottom of page 13. Another interpretive problem is resolved in the same manner by going back to the creationist worldview. Kingdom prophecies make reference to heightened human health and longevity. Sickness and death, except for discipline against overt sin, will be unknown in this kingdom. So, you will turn to Isaiah 33, 24. Let's look at some of those verses. Look at some of these verses and put yourself in the 95th percentile in biblical knowledge among believers. Isaiah 33, verse 24. This is a prophecy of the kingdom. What do you do with a verse like this one? No resident in the kingdom will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Isaiah, and you, there's various verses I give, but they're all basically the same thing. Um, I, while we're in Isaiah, turn back to Isaiah 29:18. There's a good one. And on that day... The deaf person shall hear the words of a brook. Isn't that a neat sentence? Hear the trickling of a brook. The deaf will hear the words of a book. And out of the gloom and the darkness and the eyes of the blind shall see. They shall read the book and they shall see. Now what is that saying? It's saying that genetic and birth defects are gone. No, but the handicapped is gone. Now, in modern medical terminology, what do you think this implies? Let's think about this. When you have a blind person, talking in terms of not an accidentally blind person, but say a genetically blind person, what's, the, what's happened? Something's happened to their genes. Something's destroyed in there. But it's fixed in the kingdom of God. You see, part of that cursing in Genesis has been 
gradually diminished. Now, it's not that these people live forever, but they live long, and you can look at those verses. So death hasn't been eliminated, but it's as though this future kingdom, just like here, I mean, Adam and Eve theoretically could have lived for infinity in their natural body. And then they dropped from infinity to 930 years of the fall. And then after the fall, they dropped from 930 down to 7. Well, the millennial kingdom is only a thousand years long. These people live up to that limit. So it almost looks like it recapitulates this earlier period. That's why if you mythologize Genesis 1 to 11, you will always allegorize the books of the kingdom. If you go literal in Genesis 1 to 11, usually, though there are some that don't, usually you'll find yourself going literal with the kingdom. Okay. Um, years and years ago, I found this picture, and I did a pen and ink of it, because I couldn't, This back when we had this, it didn't have a copy machine that worked right. And uh, this is many, many years ago. I cut this thing out of, out of a document that I had. But here was a case, when I was interested in this many decades ago, about this kingdom issue. I ran across this book by Seventh-day Adventist. And it was a whole story about this lioness cub who grew up on this farm in Washington. And her name was Little Tyke. And this Seventh-day Adventist raised this lioness cub. It had been rejected by the mother, gave it a diet of cooked cereals, raw eggs, and milk. And uh, this picture that I looked at was at four years, she weighed 352 pounds, so she didn't have any problem with developing muscles on a vegetarian diet. And she ate field grasses. Now, I'm not trying to make a, a total point that this, you know, you can force carnivores to do this. What I'm saying, though, is the zoological kingdom has a lot of flexibility in it, even now. Add to that the supernatural things Christ can do when he returns. And what's so unbelievable about the prophecies here? Okay, so I think our first point on our criteria that we've worked on tonight is a creationist view of nature implies that you can take the kingdom prophecies literally and straightforwardly. And it also tells us that God's kingdom is to be viewed in Genesis terms. That when God planted the garden in Eden and he put man there, it was an environment, a special environment for man. So the environment does count. I mean, we all like beauty. People have different ideas of beauty and so on. But I think we all appreciate a comforting, restful environment. And I think we all kind of intuitively know when downtown Baltimore at 5 p.m. is not quite the restful, peaceful environment that we just relish to be in. We all know that. So you can't say you're going to have an ideal society unless something happens to the environment. And that's why the kingdom of God in the scriptures is both nature and man. Well, we've talked about the nature side, the creationist view of nature. So now on the bottom, page 14, we come to the creationist view of man. The second criteria. So now this gets a little extensive. And if you'll note the underlined sections on bottom, page 14, middle of page 15, middle of page 16, and lower on 16. There are subsections to this unit. I'm going to deal now with the implications of a biblical view of man. Man's purpose, his creation, his characteristics, what he does. Let's turn back to Genesis 1.26 again. 
Man was given a purpose when he was created. Now, people who are critics of the Christian faith love to paint us with a brush that makes us look like we're anti-man. We're always putting people down. Um, and, and maybe we aren't wise sometimes, and we, leave, we, we create this bad image ourselves. But it's, it's not that the Bible puts man, uh, puts man down. If you look at this passage, this is anything but putting man down. Look at it. This is the created purpose of man. Verse 26. The Trinity present there. Let us, plural, make man in our image according to our likeness and do love with him. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing. It doesn't mean eating them. That's Genesis 9. At this point, it was you work with them. It's like a relationship between you and your pet. There's a, a relationship there. And that's the idea here, ruling over the fish. God created man. Verse 28, he blessed him. And he said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the eye, and every living thing. Now, remember we said back when we covered this, the modern ecologists, the theoretical modern ecologists, know very well this scripture. Verse 26, 27, 28. And you read articles. They've been writing these articles for 20 or 30 years now. A guy by the name of White started it. And Professor White wrote this article and he said, See, you know what that shows? It shows that biblical Christianity is by definition anti-environment. It produces a crass attitude toward caring for the environment. Look at that. Rule over. Who do we think we are to rule over? We can't rule ourselves. So, besides the fact that Professor White is taking the post-fall image of man for his norm, this is the pre-fall image of man, and it's to be interpreted in an utterly different way than Professor White does for 20 or 30 pages. The idea is that man is destined to rule and subdue the earth, bring it under created order. Remember, God created a garden? A garden had boundaries. It meant that man had to go outside the garden and farm that land. And go outside that and farm that land. And farm more and more and more. The earth was not farmed until man did it. That's why, remember that we went into the conflict, so-called, between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And Genesis 2, the plants that are there are the cultivated plants. And the idea was that God put a little cultivated plants here. And then he said, okay, go for it. Now, that's what I want you to do. I want you to plant gardens all over this planet. I want you to beautify this planet. I've created it for you. Now, you take care of it and really make it produce. Well, now it's interesting that when you come to the, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going we're gonna to see this as we go into his career, he is going to be called by a name that's sort of odd. It's a kind of a new name. It only occurs once or twice in the Old Testament. Luke uses it a lot. The name is the Son of Man. And we hear that, you know, we read the New Testament, Son of Man. Well, gee, that's nice. We don't give it a moment's thought. You suppose we could get a little bit more by thinking about this verse? When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, 
He's literally saying, I am the son of Adam. What do you suppose that image of Jesus carries with it? Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. I am going to be the second Adam. Paul brings this out in 1 Corinthians 15. What does it mean for Christ to be the second Adam? What was Adam supposed to do that he screwed up on? Subdue the earth. What do you suppose Jesus is going to do? Subdue the earth. That's why he's going to be called the Son of Man. He fulfills man's destiny. So, a lot's invited. So, the idea, again, the bottom of page 14, according to Genesis, man's purpose is to subdue the earth for God. Will mankind in mortal history ever subdue nature for God? Will the human race ever really reach its theological purpose before eternity begins? Both premillennialists and postmillennialists concur there must be a triumph of the kingdom of God before eternity begins. The Genesis mandate was given to man for mortal history when he was created lower than the angels, not for eternity when he is to rule over angels. See the difference? The Bible knows this. Moreover, since Christ is true humanity, he too will fail unless he carries out Genesis 1, 26-28 before eternity. The New Testament points to that victory in terms of Christ, and it quotes Genesis 1, 26-27 when it describes the Lord Jesus Christ's work. Why is that? Because Christ's salvation is more than dying on a cross for our sins. It is that. But after a person's saved, now what's next? You've got to do something. Man's got a function. Christ restores us to the functionality that we had in Adam. So we subdue all things. This is what sanctification is all about. We're learning, in our little pathetic way, to subdue first the section of the earth that's closest to us, which is what? This thing. And the lust of the flesh. And that's what we're talking about in the Christian life, isn't it? Subduing the lust of the flesh. I mean, you're talking about society. We can't even subdue our own lust of the flesh here. So, we're dealing with, with our own little bucket of worms. Subduing it. But Christ, he was victorious. And we'll see all the struggles Jesus had in his life. He was tried and he was tested and he was found victorious. He did triumph. He said it is finished. And now he's going to lead the rest of humanity under him on to this goal of Genesis. Okay, now in the next paragraph. Watch what this does to our concept of the kingdom. The difference between the premillennialists and the postmillennialists is one of degree. How far, there, that's a sentence you want to underline, how far will man subdue the earth? That's the issue now between the premillennialists and the postmillennialists. The postmillennialist argues that the golden era which the church is supposed to bring into existence, quote, and this is their quote, not mine, an optimist in a sort of mundane way. We're an optimist in a theologically powerful way. The post-millennialist, therefore, would see mankind subduing some of, some of its social problems, some of its technological difficulties, but mankind would not subdue all nature under its feet in the sense that geophysical environment itself, human longevity, and zoological transformation would be included. You see now the concepts of the kingdom involved here? The kingdom of God is a mighty, powerful thing in the word of God. It's something not lightly to be thought of. Something that's deeply and profoundly glorifying to the purpose of the human race. The human race 
will not be said to triumph until the damage that was caused at the fall is undone to some degree here. Okay. The premillennialist foresees a far greater degree of submission. He sees mankind through Christ as subduing the animal realm so effectively that a child will be able to lead a young lion, according to Isaiah 11.6. To bring about this degree of subjugation, Christ executes a complex strategy involving hard-to-imagine removal of evil spirits from historical influence, as well as the commingling of resurrected saints with millennial humans not yet resurrected. The precedent, of course, for such commingling of divine and human beings is already established in the same era that we've talked about because who coexisted with the human race during this period of time when man lived 930 years? It was the angels. So angels and men coexisted during this era. Strange society. Not much is told about it. The Bible passes right over it. You know, whole, four whole verses devoted to it. But something strange was going on, and capital punishment was being administered by angels. They are the ones that had the swords. And then right here, capital punishment is given to man. Transfer. And then a bunch of these angels go down to a place called Tartarus, which is explained in the book of Jude. All kind of hairy stuff. Well, when the millennial kingdom comes, Christ comes back for a thousand years until eternity. And during this period of time, the human longevity curve goes up again from where it is now. It's elevated up. There's people here prior to Christ's return. And this, by the way, uh, Glenn asked this question last week about where does the rapture and all the rest of it occur. Here is why. Remember I said in the Q&A one evening here we were talking about, I said Theology has certain stability points, and you can, ha you can park in any place, but it's kind of like a ramp, and you'll find yourself kind of being pushed down into one position, or you'll find yourself being pushed down to another position. There's a settled, stable zones, And this is why, once you assume a premillennial position, you are driven to a pre-trib position. And the reason is, is because to get the millennial kingdom, you've got to have people occupying it with natural bodies. Okay? What happens if you're a post-trip and you have the rapture of the church simultaneously happen with the second advent of Christ? How many people are left, believers, with natural bodies? None. They've all been transformed into resurrection bodies. So how do you ever get a kingdom started then? So this is why the rapture and the second advent are two separate and distinct things because there's a whole nucleus of the world population that enters this kingdom in natural bodies. Their, their longevity, they're healthy, but their natural bodies, they're not resurrected. The kingdom of God in this thousand years is, is made up of natural human beings ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ who comes back to earth, but he's walking around in a resurrected body. Presumably the church with him in some way, perhaps, not definitely stated, but there's a ruling going on. And it's from the resurrected. And why, by the way, what's true of resurrected people, not true of unresurrected people? Once you're resurrected, go back to that good-evil diagram that we show. Once we're resurrected, good and evil has been separated permanently. No more repentance. 
No more gracious bridge. So, once we are resurrected, there's no danger of us falling back into evil. And that's what makes, probably, this is speculation on my part, that's what makes the kingdom of God probably run halfway smoothly. Because who is the administration that runs it? See, it's not fallen man anymore. It's resurrected victorious people. They rule. And by the way, they rule with force. There is force in the millennial kingdom. The military has been disbanded. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. But what does the prophecy say about Christ? He shall rule with a rod of iron. So there's physical power, but it's centered now in the hands, not of the human race anymore, but it's centered in the, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He exercises. And people will be shocked to see that he also believes in capital punishment. Okay. Let's uh, continue. The next thing that man has is he has his language. I bring this up because obviously interpretation of scripture gets into this figurative thing. And I won't make a big issue of that because of our time tonight, but uh, if you'll notice, I quote Psalm 33, 9. What did God do with his language? His language is so powerful. What does it do that our language doesn't do? Psalm 33 says he spoke and what? He created the world. The Lord Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee one day. It was a storm. And the Gospels. See, this is where you want the Old Testament to really zip you up here on, on the New Testament. See that little word? The disciples just were blown away. This is a storm in the Sea of Galilee. These guys made their business fishing here. They're not strangers to what goes on in the Sea of Galilee. And I visited there, and they, people, to this day, the Israelis have patrol boats all over this. It's like Kinneret, now it's called. And they have patrol boats because every time there's a storm there, they make everybody get off of the lake. And if you don't, you get arrested because people get drowned out there. It's a small lake, and the wind currents from the Golan Heights and everything else cause some real problems. Fast. So they have boats with blue lights on them. I mean, they look like our, our bay police here. And they're all over the place when there's going to be a storm. Well, here Jesus is out in the middle of this thing, and he, he says to the water, Be still. It takes him about a second and a half to say it. All of a sudden, the environment's still. And they say, what kind of a man is this? That even the waves and the wind listen to him. I mean, can you imagine being in a situation like that? That's a picture of what it must have been, a small picture, what it must have been at Psalm 33.9. When God, if we were there, time machine or something, and he says, I want to create a son. And he doesn't have to get tools out. He doesn't have to, you know, massage the molecules. He just thinks it, speaks it, and it happens. Amazing. This is the Word of God. So, language, his language, is that powerful. Now, our language is a very mundane, weak, finite version of his language. But the point is that figurative use of language is legitimate. And that's why I wanted you to see that quote there by Dr. Pilkey, who's taught English literature many years. I went to school with John, and he's the guy who spent probably 30 years of his life studying Genesis 11. I don't know anybody that has ever spent so much time studying the Table of Nations. 
But anyway, he's an English professor. And he's worked a lot with figurative language. And he says, he's talking here about Ezekiel's passage, which those of you who don't know that, that's a passage where Satan is, is spoken to as though he's the king of Tyre. A very famous passage. The cornerstone of prophetic vision is the power to reason synthetically. Poetry subordinates differences to similarities. Ezekiel's passage tacitly fuses the king of Tyre with the prelapsarian Satan. Passive identifications of this kind are the bedrock of poetry, but they are as objectively real as anything we know. They seem dreamlike or unreal to us because of our instinct to plod from one reality to another without perceiving ideal symbolic connections. The poetic mind realizes that the king of Tyre and Satan were entirely distinct persons, but that Ezekiel reveals a compelling identity between them. What is this saying in a nutshell? He's saying that figurative language was never intended to deny the literal source of it. Um, In the Song of Songs, uh, the lover says that um, uh, something about a golden apple, I remember is one of the metaphors there. Now, it, what is a golden apple? Something that's very valuable, in this case. Um, is that to deny that the guy that said that doesn't believe in golden apples? No. He believes in the literalness. That's why he's using it figuratively. Why does he have to use it figuratively, though? Why do we have to use, have to use, figure, figures of speech? In our everyday language, we use figures of speech. Why are we forced to do that, whether we're poets or not? How do you talk about qualities, good, right, wrong, beauty? Those are all abstractions. You can point to something, but you're saying, like you would a child, now that's, that's beautiful. But what you're trying to do is teach the child beauty is, is that quality that you can find in different things. But you can't ever point to it and say there's 3.8 inches of beauty because it's something that can't be grasped, literally. So language, it always has a figurative component to it. That's not its weakness, though. That's my point. It's not weakness, nor is it a denial of the literal. So if you turn the page in 15, come back over here. When you talk about Elijah and John the Baptist, which is another thing like the King of Tyre and Sidon, the post-millennialists and the amillennialists try to say that John the Baptist, on the basis of Jesus' statement, was Elisha. And they try to argue that, that that's a figurative thing, because down the bottom of page 15, Jesus speaks to John the Baptist of fulfilling the prophecy of Elisha. So they say that that fulfillment means that John the Baptist was Elijah. Well, the problem with that is that John, John 1.21, denies he is Elijah. Well, now you've got a conflict of Scripture, or, or Jesus was talking figuratively at that point about a similarity between John and Elijah. He wasn't denying the two. Okay. And that's why the quote, again, from John Pilkey, the existence of a harmonious spiritual world in which the distinction of soul between a John the Baptist and Elijah takes place second to an identity of the divine vocation common to both men. And then he talks about Christian typology. All right, following this, that same paragraph down the bottom, last sentence, a prophetic text can carry both meanings and require both for complete fulfillment. That's the gist of what I'm trying to get at. 
Now, very quickly, the next point is man's corporate structure. The complaints against literal interpretation, one of them you already saw it in the notes four or five pages prior, was the Bible prophesized about nations that no longer exist. How can you have literal fulfillment about the Assyrians? Where are the Assyrians today? Nobody knows where the Assyrians today are. The Bible has prophecies about the Assyrians. So how do you handle that, pre-mills? Very simple. We go back to the fact that the Bible has a genealogical structure. The Bible looks at history in a genealogical fashion rather than a chronological or geographical way. The Assyrians sprang from Asher, Genesis 10.22. So regardless of the international labels, whether today they're called Iraqis, Iranians, or Saudis, regardless of the labels, genetically are they the sons of Asher. Well, we can't track that. I know we can't track that. But God says that the people who are the genetic sons of Asher, wherever their descendants are living today, under whatever political conditions, certain things are going to happen to them. Because God looks down and he sees us as who we are related to genealogically. All of us. Most of us are probably related to uh, Japheth. And he sees us as the sons and daughters of Japheth. It's the way he sees us. He tells us this in Genesis 10 and 11. Now, if you want to see a good example, and, and we've already covered this in previous uh, Thursday nights, but that's where I bring up the, the tribe. One modern evidence is the Hebrew tribe of Levi. Over 34 centuries ago, God promised the Levitical priesthood under Aaron would be everlasting. Interestingly today, there is only one Hebrew tribe which still has retained its distinctive identity before men, the tribe of Levi. Jewish people with the names Levi, Levine, Levine, or Cohen, or Cohen. Cohen is the Hebrew word for priest, and you can see it, see there, see it appearing in, in English because it's phonetic. When we see Levi, or Levine, or Cohen, or Cohen, those are transliterations of the Hebrew words. They're not English words. They're not English words. They're English transliteration of the Hebrew names. If one tribe can retain its identity before men for many centuries, then it is not inherently impossible for other tribes of men to remain identifiable to God for many centuries. So that's the view of history, and that's the answer to the invisible nations. Now, the last one, we don't have time because we've run out of time tonight, but it is the responsibility to its creator. Uh, and we want to pause and, and spend time on that next week because next week we're going to cover items three and four of the criteria. Again, four criteria. What are we trying to do? Decide literal or figurative interpretation. What do we say number one criteria was? Said the implications of a creationist view of nature. What does that do for us? It tells us that when you see radical transformations in the environment, they are not without biblical precedent, are they? If you take Genesis literally. So there's no reason to take these things figuratively when we're talking about lions and lambs and wolves and children. Why not literally? It happened once before. Second criteria is the purpose of man. Man is to subdue the earth. Is that all over? Or is that yet to take place? Now, the next week we'll go on to items three and four, but this thing about the responsibility to his creator, that has to do with the thing we just got through studying. Remember Daniel's prayer, the last event? 
scripture and we said, what happened in that prayer? He was going to Jeremiah's prophecy and Jeremiah said, gee, the whole thing's going to be over in 70 years. Remember God said back to Daniel, well, it's 70 sevens. Well, that's a time stretching and we're going to deal with that next week because that too has implications and that sets us up to understand something about the New Testament itself. So we want to go, we want to take time in that. I want to rush through that, so we'll stop here. Thank you, Father, for our time tonight. Thank you for your word and for your grace and for your mercies that are renewed every day in our lives. In Christ's name.